I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. As most of you know, each and every edition of Parallax Views is made possible by patreon.com slash parallaxviews supporters. On that page, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, you can support me financially and help keep this show going with a monthly donation of $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100 And at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mir Project. That's M-E-E-R, Mir Project. They are doing some very interesting work in regards to global warming and combating the consequences of it. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at the... $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And if you were in one of those tiers and didn't hear your name mentioned, please contact me on Patreon or by email at parallaxviewspod at protonmail.com and I will rectify that immediately. Sometimes I do not get the proper updates from Patreon about my new financial supporters and donors. So anyone that's having that issue, just drop me a line and we will rectify the problem as quickly as possible. On this edition of Parallax Views... New York Times best-selling author and investigative journalist Christopher Leonard joins us to discuss his new book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. This is a rather critical look at the Federal Reserve and one that seeks to demystify the Fed, as well as ideas like quantitative easing in the aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis. So if you're seeking to better understand monetary policy or just trying to understand the decisions made by the Fed after the global financial crisis and how those decisions reverberate today, 
this is the conversation for you. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Christopher Leonard, author of The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on, Christopher Leonard, author of the new book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So Christopher, where I want to start out is actually maybe talking briefly about your two previous works in the context of this new book. Uh, So in the past, you've written The Meat Racket. The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business, and Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. Is there a common thread that runs through these three books or a a theme that that drew you to these subjects? Yeah, without question. Thank you for that question. I really appreciate it. So obviously, I'm a business journalist with a bent toward investigative reporting. And in all three of my books, there's a, there is a really common theme in the sense that I'm writing about institutions that have a lot of power, that um, are, are nodes of concentrated power within our economic political system. And I feel like my job as a reporter is to spend a lot of time scrutinizing these institutions and then kind of mapping out power systems. Like, like, for example, my first book, The Meat Racket, is about Tyson Foods, which is the biggest meat company in the United States. But I use that as a vehicle to talk about uh, the system of food production, of, of like agribusiness, of corporate controlled agriculture. And so I'm trying to map how these systems of power work and then do that through the human stories of people who live in these institutions. And, and that's from you know, the people at the peak of power, for example, who run very large corporations or who set government policy down through the sort of middle tiers of power, you know, the people who administer the system, who run it, and then the people, uh, you know, toward the bottom of the pyramid of power who are, are sort of subjects of these systems of power. So, you know, in all three books, I think you see that sort of same approach and the same the same goal of really understanding how our system works and describing it to to everybody else, you know, American citizens, if you will. So I want to get into what the Federal Reserve is, but I want to do it from a a, a certain frame. So your book uh, takes, I would say, a a sort of critical look (laughs) at the Federal Reserve. I'll own that. Yeah. (laughs) What's interesting to me is I think, and, and you do bring this up in the book, as I recall, I think a lot of writing that has been critical of the Federal Reserve that is sort of semi-well-known has usually come from, uh, I would say, some libertarian viewpoints, you know, this this whole uh, the creature from Jekyll Island type line. There's been very few books uh, that are critical of the Federal Reserve that come from a different perspective, one of them being your book. And also, I believe in the 1980s, William Grider's book. Uh, Secrets of the Temple, which is a very, very good book. I recommend it to everyone. Uh, So what is maybe the difference between how someone like yourself uh, or William Grider has criticized the Federal Reserve and maybe some of those people who uh, I would say take an almost conspiratorial view of the Fed? So much to unpack there. And you absolutely nailed it. Um, and, And I try to kind of address this in the book that 
I guess you'd say the sort of built in critical crowd against the Federal Reserve, like the crowd that really obsesses about this, that calls for limits on the Federal Reserve's power, that calls for abolishing the Federal Reserve. That crowd tends to be what we would call, uh, you know, libertarian, conservative, uh, right wing. Take your pick. You know, it's the Drudge Report, Fox News crowd, if you will. And then, you know, on on the left side of the American uh, political spectrum, you know, folks who might be skeptical of corporate power um, or more progressive in their views, there's not as much of a sort of built-in inherent skepticism of the Fed. There's definitely not as much energy around criticizing the Fed. There's not as much interest in the Fed. I can't totally explain to you why that is, but it definitely is. And I can say that from personal experience, just in terms of like who's been interested in this book. Uh, I, you know, the right wing, if you will, conservative tends to be very skeptical of concentrated government power. So that leads to a discussion of the Fed. But let me kind of address William Grider's book, which is epic, uh, Secrets of the Temple. I'm so glad you brought that up. Great book. He took a different approach. It's this beautifully sprawling mammoth book that talks about the entire history of the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, that's why I cite it in the text of my book. And he's talking about also the nature of money itself. He spends a lot of time talking about that. My book is, is much more targeted. I'm talking about the most recent decade of policy at the Federal Reserve. The book really starts in 2010 and it ends in very early 2020, 21. And I, I'm trying to explain as an investigative reporter what's happened during this decade, which has really been a step change. Uh, the Fed is engaged in, in massively interventionist experiments over the last decade that have reshaped our economy. I obviously didn't feel that these experiments were well-documented enough, well-understood enough, or well-scrutinized enough. So that's why I wrote this book that focuses on the last decade. And I mean, in closing, you know, you, were, you use the word conspiratorial, and that just like shoots through so much of the criticism of the Fed. And I think it's because this institution has so much darn power. I mean, the Fed's policies are controlled by a committee of 12 voting members. And I mean, their power is extraordinary. And, and I think that it's pretty easy to start sounding conspiratorial when you start talking about this institution, because really they can, with one vote, determine uh, so much about our economic life. I was going to say, too, it probably doesn't help that it was uh, founded on uh, Jekyll Island. So that makes it easy to say, oh, the creature from Jekyll Island, the Federal Reserve. Totally. <laughs> so uh, seriously, mm -hmm. like like I guess all the hotels were booked at Skull and Crossbones Island and like, uh, you know, Death by Banker Island. So they're like, we'll go to Jekyll Island. You know, <laughs> it's crazy. So then. For my audience, uh, because I, I have a lot of lay listeners that that aren't as, I think, necessarily aware of what the Federal Reserve is, or I always assume there's people that are new to the subject. So uh, what is the Federal Reserve and, and what does it do? And also maybe what isn't the Federal Reserve? What, what are some of the myths about it? Oh, my God. Great question. Okay. Let's go back to the basics. And, and this is so important because one of the things I talk about in the book 
is how the Fed has tried to present itself as this like hyper technical institution that you need to have a PhD in economics to even understand. It feels very remote from our lives. It feels like stuff only economists should talk about. I was going to say it's treated as something that's uh, almost like mystical, you know, a hundred percent. Like, for example, you know, some of the stuff I'm talking about could be described as uh, the FOMC decided today to taper bond purchases on markets to ease conditions without causing market volatility. Like what? It not English doesn't make sense. And you're like, I shouldn't care about this. But we should all care about this. You know, the politics of currency and money creation is, 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 is a people's politics. It belongs in the democratic square. It affects us all in profound ways. So what is the Federal Reserve? It's an institution we created in 1913. It's a central bank. It's, it's, it's a government-run bank that also is a privately held bank. So it's a, this bizarre hybrid of government institution and a private enterprise. We created the central bank to do two critically important things. The first most important thing is we created the central bank to in turn create and manage a currency. The thing we call a dollar is a federal reserve note. And prior to the birth of the federal reserve, there were literally thousands of currencies in the United States. You know, a bank in Illinois would issue its own currency. And so if I lived in Illinois in, you know, like 1890 and I went to Oregon to stay in a hotel, I would have to have a debate with the clerk about the soundness of the currency I was presenting. It, 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 was, it was chaotic and unreliable. Um, the, the financial picture in the 1890s and 1900s was you know, defined by long periods of deflation, by periodic banking panics. It was unstable. So the Fed creates the dollar. It creates the Federal Reserve note. And then the second key function is that the Fed was situated right in the middle of the banking system, and it was given this job of being the so-called lender of last resort. So if there was a banking panic, the Fed could step in and print new money and loan it to banks that were otherwise healthy, but that were in danger of being sucked into a, a bank panic. And in that way, it would stabilize the banking system. So that's why we created the Fed. That's what the Fed started doing in 1913 when it created the dollar, and that's what it did for decades and I mean, people disagree with me. I kind of argue the Fed did a really good job, more or less, in, in managing our currency and creating a stable banking system, of course, in line with you know, government regulations on the banks. So the second part is like, what is the Fed not? Um, yeah, and I, just to go ahead. clarify here, I was going to say, there's always that. I, the reason I ask that is because there's always this question I hear come up of, is the Fed private or public? Um, and maybe we could get into that, but uh, go on with what you think the Fed is not. Well, that you nailed it right there. And like when I start getting a little bit edgy is when someone starts asking about, OK, let's talk about who owns the Fed, because that instantly leads down a path sometimes where you're talking about like the Rothschilds and like the Illuminati and stuff. So. The Fed was created in a, in a very typically American way in the sense that it is like a decentralized federated system. It's actually a federal reserve system of 12 private banks called regional banks that are networked together. And so these private banks are, quote, owned by stockholders. But it's a weird setup, again, because 
these banks are owned by other banks who have stock and they're not allowed to ever sell the stock, but they still own it. And in this way, it's privately held and it is a private bank. But but again, it's it's governed. Interestingly, it's governed by a committee in Washington, D.C. Okay, this federated system of 12 banks has a capital building in Washington, D.C. called the Eccles Building. And that's where the chairperson of the Federal Reserve sits with a board of governors uh, that, that decide what this system's going to do. So when you hear that the Fed like raised interest rates today, what that means is this committee of board governors and regional bank presidents got together in D.C. and decided what to do. So it's a privately held network of banks controlled by a government board in Washington, D.C. Complicated a little bit. I want to get into, you know, the the 2008 crisis and the lead up to 2010, because your book sort of starts at at 2010 in a lot of ways. But first, before we do that, you know, it's interesting to me. You said that uh, a lot of people uh, may feel mystified by the Fed or feel like it's it's rocket science. They're just not going to get it. Uh, Things weren't always that way, though. Uh, In the book, uh, you actually make reference to the populist politician of, of years and years ago, William Jennings Bryan, uh, who has that famous line, I believe it's, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. So we used to talk a lot more about uh, monetary policy in this country. Uh, and it seems like now we don't as much. Um, could you maybe explain how we got to that point? Totally. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for reading the book. <laughs> so this is so important. And, and the, okay, quickly, like the book opens in 2010 when the Fed is about to undertake this incredible experiment in printing money. To put it in quick shorthand terms, between 08 and 2014, the Fed prints 300 years worth of money, like this crazy step change in money creation. But the policy is called quantitative easing, which like makes no sense to anybody. And that illuminates something so important about the politics of money. Let's turn the clock back 100 years to when William Jennings Bryan was running for president. And he, he gives that quote, mankind shall not be crucified upon a cross of gold. And, and what I pointed out about that, what's important to me is like, that was retail politics. William Jennings Bryan was like riling up the crowd. People cared about monetary policy in the early 1900s in the way we care about gun control or Obamacare uh, or things like that today. And this is before the Fed existed. This was before the Fed existed. And this is what led to the Fed, because, you know, we lived in this economic system in the early 1900s. And, you know, back then, over a third of the United States population was in agriculture, okay? Farming was still a big deal. And farmers had to borrow a lot of money to kind of deal with their the cyclical nature of farming. You had to borrow a lot of money to hire people, to get the crops in, et cetera. And so the money system affected people a lot. And there was a populist movement driven by farmers to create some kind of central bank because they were sick and tired of the economic volatility that benefited big banks on Wall Street, right? What Some things never change. 
And what's interesting to me is there were all these really creative policy proposals in the early 1900s as to how to create a central bank. Like, for example, this is all in Greeter's book. It's epic. Um, they talked about creating a decentralized network of like grain silos or decentralized United States treasuries that would create money and the money could be owned and operated under a co-op system. All these creative energies were around how to structure the central bank. And the key thing that Greeter talks about in Secrets of the Temple is that by 1913, the bankers are like, okay, man, we either need to take this train over or we're going to get run over by this train. And that was the deal they made at Jekyll Island was let's create a central bank that basically lives on Wall Street and is governed from Washington and can only create money. This is critical. The Fed can only create money inside the bank accounts of 24 Wall Street institutions. You know, forget this like decentralized, you know, creating money out in like Leavenworth, Kansas or something. They're going to create the money on Wall Street and they're, they're going to keep the Wall Street system central to our lives. The bankers at Jekyll Island were worried that a government run central bank might displace Wall Street. So they said that will not happen. We will place the bank kind of within and behind Wall Street. So, so this is critical. Okay. But the other big trend you bring up is this happens. The Federal Reserve is formed in 1913. And let's just fast forward to 1995 when Alan Greenspan, probably the most like famous chairperson of the Federal Reserve in history, Alan Greenspan's in charge of the Federal Reserve. And he pioneered this language around the Fed and its policy called Fed speak. That is, intentionally complicated and obtuse. Okay. He, I, I quote this whole paragraph of a Greenspan hearing just to like marvel at how opaque and obtuse the language is. And he did that on purpose. And, and part of the political purpose of doing this is to remove the politics of money further and further from the public square to make it seem like these high-minded Olympian geniuses at the Fed are doing things we can't possibly understand, and we need to sit in our seats and let them take care of business. And I think that that's terribly, terribly damaging because the Fed can do huge things, and the public is only marginally aware of what's, what the Fed is doing. So with regards to the global financial crisis, I think this is really important because you know, a lot of economists talk about how, you know, there's the pre-GFC world and the, the post-GFC world. So maybe you could explain just what the significance of the global financial crisis was, because I think some people, uh, you know, it's been uh, a number of years now since 2008, they forget it really was apocalyptic in a lot of ways. No doubt. And I think that it is appropriate and correct to call the global financial crisis, the GFC and apply it as like a biblical calendar of like ADBC. Like there was the world before the GFC and then the world after the GFC. The Federal Reserve, by the way, was much more responsible for the global financial crisis than is in my opinion, discussed enough. So in, in the run up to 2008, we had a spree of reckless lending around the world, which was supported by the Federal Reserve because it kept interest rates 
too low for too long. This was a big legacy of the Greenspan era. Greenspan constantly put forward this idea that Wall Street knew what it was doing, that sophisticated investors would protect themselves, and that the Fed could make money cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and encourage more and more lending and purchasing of debt. And that, you know, the grand wizards in Wall Street, um, that's a terrible phrase, the great minds on Wall Street could uh, determine what they were doing. Okay, that whole thing collapses in 08. Because look at the mortgage market, like this is well known, all these all these loans were extended that made no sense at all. And then those loans were packaged up into securities and sold. And then there were contracts based on the value of those securities called derivatives. The whole system short circuits in 2008. And, and, and the financial world literally seizes up and stops. So we're talking about a financial crash that will create a Great Depression, like full stop. Great Depression is here. Um, that's not good, obviously. That's what's going on in September 2008. And, you know, the reaction of our federal agencies and, and our democratic institutions was um, left much to be desired. I mean, the, Wall House, the White House and Congress was totally caught flat-footed and, you know, tried to bail out, did bail out the banks, but really couldn't figure out what to do. Whereas the Federal Reserve could move quite quickly because as, as we've talked about, you know, the Fed isn't accountable to voters. They can just print money and they don't need the say-so from anybody. And so after the crash starts in 2008, the Fed prints a trillion dollars. Basically, before Congress even has its shoes on to get out the door in the morning, the Fed prints a trillion dollars to funnel cash into the banking system and stop this panic. Since you mentioned Alan Greenspan, and I know uh, you don't necessarily get into this in the book, at least not this specifically, but I want to use it as a frame here. Uh, Greenspan, I, I know, was very into... Ayn Rand and objectivism at one point. And it leads me uh, to this question of what role does um, ideology play in, you know, how a lot of the people associated with the Fed may think about things? So ideology played an enormous role in the Greenspan era, and it played an enormous role in leading to the debt crisis of 2008, because, you know, Greenspan in concrete terms was saying the government needs to get its hands off the banking system. Okay, this is so critical. We had a, we had a horrific financial market crash in 1929 in the United States. And then it, it, it grew into a depression. And then Franklin Roosevelt was elected president and, and Democrats controlled Congress. And they passed through a series of laws that collectively called the New Deal, that broke up the banks. I mean, the first thing FDR did when he took office was shut down the banking system. They called it a holiday, but they shut down the banks. They nationalized the riskiest banks, and then they reopened the banks that were healthy. And and they passed laws like the Glass-Steagall bill that were like very simple, but sweeping in what they did. They broke apart speculative investment banking from commercial banking where we all have bank deposits. And now this, I'm talking about this because when they passed the New Deal, 
it laid the framework for a banking system from 1935-ish to about 1995. And that was a period, not coincidentally, when the system was as stable as possible. And the decision to tear apart the New Deal was ideological in its basis. It was driven by guys like Alan Greenspan, Larry Summers, Timothy Geithner, Bill Clinton. These folks believed ideologically that the government only you know, hindered the brilliant minds on Wall Street. So they just tore apart the regulatory structure of the New Deal. At the same time, the Federal Reserve was making money cheaper and overheating the stock market. And it's what led to 2008. So like the ideological underpinnings, listen, they're important. And, and I think you asked me the question of like, what were the ideological underpinnings of the people around Greenspan? Let's put it this way. From Greenspan through his Ben Bernanke, through Janet Yellen, through Jay Powell, the ideology, you know, whatever it stated faces always benefits the biggest of the big banks and the financial interests on Wall Street. That's the ideology that dominates. I'm reminded of the, the line President Clinton had uh, at one point where I think he said, uh, or he declared, you know, the era of big government is over. It sounds like that ties into all of that. Here's what's fascinating to me about that era. And in my previous book, Cokeland, I tried to write about all this stuff that Cokeland takes place from 1967 until about 2017. And yes, Bill Clinton, this is so fascinating. He said the big, the era of big government is over at the same time that they're passing draconian police reforms that are throwing millions of people into prison and like militarizing our police. Weird. This era is defined by reducing government interference and burden on specific parts of our economy, on Wall Street, okay? We take away the rules for Wall Street and we add more rules for the average citizenry in the form of law enforcement, war on drugs, you name it. And, and to me, that's one of the, the biggest important trends that's been happening in our country definitely since 1980 and continued unabated um, you know, under Clinton, Obama, George W. Bush. So it's interesting. Your book uh, is subtitled How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. But I know you had another subtitle for this book, and I think it was something along the lines of um, how quantitative easing changed the world. So I guess that leads us to what is quantitative easing? Because I think people hear that term and they don't necessarily know what it means. And they're like, oh, this is going to be too hard to understand. So what, what exactly is it? Yeah. And thank you for pointing that out. This book changed as I reported it. And I came out in a much more critical place than I started. Um, I, I, I totally appreciate how contentious it is to subtitle a book, how the Federal Reserve broke the American economy. And I knew that that would be reserved, uh, received poorly. Let's go back to the beginning. Why would a, a basically normal guy become uh, obsessed with quantitative easing. Um, we just talked about the financial crash of 2008. The Fed printed a trillion dollars or more during that crash. The banking system more or less stabilized. You know, unlike FDR, we didn't break up the banks. We just gave them a ton of money. 
the too big to fail banks got bigger and less able to fail. That was the policy decision made by the Obama administration. So here we are on the other side of that in 2010. In 2010, our democratic institutions like the United States Congress are entering this era of like paralysis. They, they're not doing anything. The Tea Party becomes elected. It's no coincidence that the Tea Party is elected November uh, 3rd, 2010. They're, the you know election day is November 2nd, and the Tea Party takes power. They basically shut down Congress. And the next day, the committee of 12 voting members that run the Fed vote to execute quantitative easing. What is that? Quantitative easing is an unprecedented policy, wildly experimental and dramatic in its reach, but pretty simple in its core. It's printing money on Wall Street. Uh, at its core, quantitative easing happens this way. You'll have a financial trader who works at the Federal Reserve. Uh, I've been on the trading floor in New York City. That Fed trader will call a counterpart at JP Morgan and say, hey, I want to buy $8 billion worth of bonds from you, like uh, treasury bonds or something. And JP Morgan says, okay, sells that to the Fed. And then the Fed trader says, okay, now look inside your special bank account at the Federal Reserve. Boom. The Fed trader just creates $8 billion inside JP Morgan to pay for those assets the Fed just bought. So what the Fed does is it repeats that transaction again and again and again and again until the Fed has created 600 billion new dollars, for example, inside the banks on Wall Street. So between 2010 and 2014, the Fed prints three and a half trillion dollars. By contrast, in the first 95 years of its existence, the Fed only expanded the monetary base to about 900 billion. One way we could put that is the Fed prints about a trillion dollars in a century, and then it prints three and a half trillion dollars in a few years. And the goal here is really amazing. It's, it's like Ben Bernanke, who was chairman of the Fed. And he's the author, basically, of quantitative easing in a lot of ways. Ben Bernanke is the author and father of quantitative easing. And you know, he's this uh, academic professor who taught at Princeton, who advocated for a very aggressive central bank posture and came up with all these wild experiments of what the Fed could do to boost job growth. Quantitative easing was one of the proposals he came up with all the way, you know, as far back as the early 2000s. And he gets his chance to implement it in 2010 because Bernanke had kind of emerged from the 08 financial crisis as, as a hero. Like literally the Atlantic magazine has a darn cover story about Bernanke that says the hero. I mean, and this guy, you know, he's on 60 minutes, he's getting all this praise because at the end of the day, all the Fed did was print a trillion dollars and give it to the banks. Structural reforms were at zero, as you know, punishment for fraud was next to zero. I think one guy from Goldman Sachs who's like a low-level analyst went to jail. Uh, so, you know, you could call that heroic, I suppose. And uh, Bernanke is arguing inside the Fed that, you know, we need to print all this money on Wall Street because it'll eventually drive economic growth. What was fascinating to me is inside the leadership committee at the Fed, there was huge resistance to this idea. 
And there were multiple people inside the, the leadership committee saying, look, we're going to print all this money on Wall Street. It's barely going to decrease the unemployment rate. It's only going to enrich the richest people who already own most of the assets in the United States. It's going to create more economic fragility because it's going to pump up asset prices. It's going to widen the gap between the rich and the poor. And even more dangerously, you know, once you start printing all this new money, you're going to become trapped in a policy of having to continue to print money uh, to, to keep the system going. All those warnings turned out to be totally accurate. And, and I know I'm going long here, I'll shut up, but like, that's what turned me on this thing. You know, at first I wanted to just describe how quantitative easing had changed our financial system and our political economy so much, but it was reading through the debates inside the Fed and reading how Ben Bernanke essentially steamrolled this opposition and then continued to intensify this program in the face of big risks that I came to see, you know, this was a policy decision that was made and the ruinous effects have been predicted and are now extant like they exist. And I wanted to point out to readers the history of that. So it's it's interesting. It sounds like you're saying, you know, all this money is is ending up going to the haves rather than, you know, the, the have nots, so to speak. So it's interesting to me. I think a lot of people would say we're well beyond the, the days of, of trickle-down economics, but I think in some ways what you're describing, it, it almost feels like hyper-trickle-down. <laughs> That's exactly what it is, and it, it, this isn't a surprise. You know, To me, the turning point of reporting, I just described what happened in 2010, right? When the Fed and Ben Bernanke decides they're going to do this level of quantitative easing, I profile the one Fed official named Thomas Honig, who really fought against this and tried to stop it and didn't succeed. And then in 2012, Ben Bernanke says, we're going to do it again, and we're going to do it larger than ever, and we're going to print even more money. And when you look at the internal debates and the internal presentations of that time, it was acknowledged and known that here's how this is going to work. We're going to print all this money on Wall Street and it's going to pump up the price of assets because all these dollars are going to get unleashed into the banking system. They're going to seek assets to buy. And when you know more dollars are chasing the same amount of assets, the prices rise. And, and what Bernanke hoped is that when these asset prices rose really quickly, it would create the so-called wealth effect where People saw the stock market was rising, so they'd feel more optimistic, or people might see their retirement accounts growing. They might spend more money. Companies would feel more optimistic, and they would hire the wealth effect. Okay, let's get back to your point about the haves and the have-nots. According to the Federal Reserve's own data, the wealthiest 1% of all Americans own about 40% of all the assets in the country. The wealthiest 10% of Americans own 65% of the assets. The bottom half of the wealth group in America, meaning half of Americans, own only 5 to 7% of all the assets. So when you have a policy I just described where you know it's going to work by pumping up asset prices, you know, like 
inarguably what it's going to do is pump up the wealth of the very top while leaving the vast majority of Americans behind. And that is exactly what happened. And it is hyper down trickle economics. And it's not just like the haves versus the have nots. It's the like super haves, the yacht having set versus everybody, not versus, but against everybody else. So I, I want to get more into Thomas Honig, but before we do that, uh, another thing I found very interesting because a lot of my listeners are very into uh, foreign policy discussion. I did not expect when reading this book to hear the term uh, hawks and doves applied uh, to these Federal Reserve debates. Uh, how did that come about? Like, wh- who are the hawks and the doves in these uh, debates? Oh, that's so great. So the so the book opens with this guy Thomas Honig. And he's about to vote against quantitative easing. And in fact, he kind of, I don't want to use the phrase ruined his career, but I mean, the guy permanently defined his career by voting no against these policies of Ben Bernanke for quantitative easing. And then the choice, which we haven't talked about, to keep interest rates pegged at zero for seven years. I mean, the book is called The Lords of Easy Money, but easy money used to be when interest rates were at like 2%. Uh, we're talking 0% for a decade coupled with printing $3.5 trillion. I mean, easy money doesn't even come to describe it. So the book opens with this guy, Tom Honig, about to vote no. And it gave me a chance to kind of talk about the politics of the Fed. So easy money, as I said, refers to low interest rates. And now, I guess, low interest rates and pumping money into the banking system through quantitative easing. And if you support easy money, like cutting interest rates, encouraging more debt, encouraging more lending, you're called a, quote, dove. And you'll see this in like the financial press all the time. Uh, Ben Bernanke was dovish. Janet Yellen was dovish. And then the opposite side is a hawk. And, And my main character, if you will, Thomas Honig is seen as like the ultra hawk and hawks are seen as fed members who want to raise interest rates or reduce the number of dollars in circulation. So-called tighten the money supply. And it, it struck me, your listeners know hawks and doves comes from the world of foreign policy and hawks are seen, I would say as, as more pro-military and pro-military intervention, more likely to use military intervention, whereas doves are more likely to be restrained in the use of the military, more diplomatic. The, the definition kind of reverses in the world of central banking. The doves are the people who want to turn on the money printing machine and pump cash into Wall Street and intervene on a larger scale and intervene more dramatically. Whereas the hawks are the people who counsel like caution and restraint and trying to, you know, save your ammo for a rainy day kind of theory. But, you know, hawk just sounds mean. It it just sounds like somebody who doesn't care about poor people. So when you say that someone wants to raise interest rates and they're hawkish, it evokes this image of, you know, they really hate poor people. They want to make the world a worse place, whereas the doves want to print more money. And it seems, I hate to say it, but it seems kind of perverse to me because as, as, as I see it, and as I think I walk through it in the book, printing this money, it can be quite damaging to the working person in America. It, it is very dovish to the heads of BlackRock and Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, 
But these policies don't benefit. They're not dovish to the working person and the wage earner nearly as much as the Fed would like us to believe. Could you give a maybe clear example of how it, it doesn't help maybe uh, Main Street America, these policies? 100%. Um, as you can tell, my bias is toward policies that benefit uh, wage earners. Uh, I, I've, I've, that's been in my previous two books and up until now. And, and I think it's, it's just been, anyway, um, how do low interest rates and quantitative easing hurt the wage earner in America? Well, first of all, we just described as, uh, by their nature, these policies dramatically enrich the top 1%. So they're pulling the top 1% away from everybody else. They're dramatically increasing income inequality. That's bad for the country. It's bad for democracy. That's well stated. I don't feel like I need to argue that. It's just bad. Second of all, when you cut interest rates and when you do what the Fed has been doing basically for over 10 years and you keep interest rates at zero, it hurts people who are trying to raise money. I'm sorry. It hurts people who are trying to save money. And and here I'm talking about pension funds like the Retired Teachers Fund of Kentucky. Uh, you know, when interest rates are at 4%, pension funds can earn money in a safe investment. When you live in the world of 0% interest rates, uh, it's there's no payment to save money. So you've got these pension funds out there pumping th the money into very risky investments, just trying to earn 3% again. So they're doing this stuff like buying risky leveraged loans that can go belly up. So that hurts people who are trying to, you know, retire or save money through a pension. But then I, I really try to walk through this in the middle of the book when I talk about the decade of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing. One of the things that's a, a little bit more nuanced is that these policies encourage the financialization of our economy. They, they encourage the most you know, reckless pro-bank policies you could imagine. They encourage all that pension saving money, for example, to be poured into risky uh, leveraged loans, but, but that in turn fuels the market for leveraged loans. And now we're talking about like the market for corporate buyouts, et cetera. And I actually profile this, this corporation in the middle of the country called Rexnord and I profile how this world of, of financial manipulation kind of collides with the old school real economy where this That's where you talk about uh, John Feltner, right? That, exactly. Like in the middle of the book, John Feltner is this guy who belongs to a labor union and works in a factory. And, 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 and the factory, Rexnord, this company is like this perfect case study for what financial management is like in a world of 0% interest rate, you know, like the CEOs just end up borrowing cheap money to, you know, do mergers and buyouts or just buy back the company's stock, which puts the money right back in their pocket, which just leverages up debt on the actual company, which then prompts the executive team to slash jobs and close plants and move production to cheaper markets overseas or in Mexico, as the case was. And so, you know, I profiled this guy, John Feltner, who it doesn't just, 
you know, kind of stagnate economically, but is worse off each year. And, you know, his factory ends up getting shut down and the production is moved to Mexico and he's put out of a job while the CEO is getting paid. I think it was like $12 million a year as the firm is doing this. Uh, it's selling corporate debt, leverage loans, and it's doing stock buybacks and all these things, all these things are, are not just encouraged by the Fed's policies. The Fed is like hyper-fueling. It's hypercharging them. So that's why we see this you know, very strange economic decade where stock prices are booming, corporate debt markets are booming, but wages are stagnating, productivity growth is stagnating, and economic growth is stagnating. And wage earners in America are ticked off and frustrated. I was going to say, it's very... It's all very sort of funhouse mirrors because, you know, you see the rich getting really rich, but the middle class and, and below them really aren't reaping the benefits of the, any of that. But that's 100% what I'm trying to describe in the book is a funhouse mirror decade whereby, you know, I mean, the, look, let's just take one statistic that the pro-Fed people love to talk about. The unemployment rate in 2019 before COVID hits, the unemployment rate is 3.5%. That's like incredibly low. The unemployment rate was lower in 2019 than it has been at any point since the 1960s. But you talk to any single American and, and just don't even talk to people, just measure the economic well-being of your average wage earner today versus 1968. It's not even close. Our jobs are more um, volatile. Uh, job security has disappeared. Uh, our wages and buying power are lower. Our retirements are less and less secure. Uh, the proportion of Americans in a labor union has fallen down into the single digits from about 33%. And, and at the same time, you can point to these metrics that say, Life is great in the United States economy. This, the S&P broke a record level today. The Dow Jones is breaking records. Uh, the market, and you know, they don't talk about this as much on like CNBC, but the market for corporate debt breaks records. Well, this is because a large, I mean, look, a huge component of what's driving this is the fact that the Fed is is supercharging the Wall Street money machine through these programs. So in the last um, you know 12 or so minutes here, I want to focus in on Thomas Honig because I, I mean we can talk about uh, policy and, and whatnot, but I think we should bring the human element in just for my listeners. I think that really drives a lot of points home. Uh, so Honig is a very interesting figure. He was the former, I believe it was, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. He also uh, was a director of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation starting in 2012. And he now, oddly enough, I think he's a, a senior fellow at the Koch-funded Mercatus uh, Center. So who is Thomas Honig uh, more in detail? And also, uh, maybe we could talk about what he's been accused of over the years, because he's often called an anti-inflation hawk and also accused of being a melanist. And I, I think you may have to explain uh, what uh, that means and why it's such a pejorative term. Yeah, so 
Uh, such great questions. Also, it's been a bit awkward for me to interview someone associated with the Mercatus Institute after doing a whole book about the Koch brothers, like a total coincidence, crazy. The folks at Mercatus at PR department, I don't think they returned my calls that much, or at least they didn't uh, before this book came out. But so I became really obsessed with quantitative easing in 2016. And it wasn't, it didn't take long to read about the vote to pass quantitative easing for the first time. And the vote was 11 members of that Fed committee against one. And I'm like, well, who's the one? Well, it was Thomas Honig, the president of the Kansas City Fed. And a really cursory bit of research presented a picture of the guy that was exactly as you just described, that Tom Honig was an ultra inflation hawk. He was a dissenter who just loved to vote no, that he he voted no at this policy committee all the time and seemed to actually just quite enjoy it. Uh, ben Bernanke was really derisive against Tom Honig when Bernanke released his memoir called The Courage to Act. And so that was kind of the picture I had in my head of this guy. And you, I was, you- was going to say real quick, it sounds like um, the image of, of him in the Federal Reserve, it sort of reminds me of... Um, a libertarian politician, Ron Paul, was always called Dr. No, uh, because he would always vote no on everything. It sounds like, uh, you know, Honig was sort of painted as being the equivalent of that within the Federal Reserve, the guy who always said no. 100%. And also very pejorative in the sense, you know, you picture Ron Paul, I kind of picture that guy walking around on the sidewalk wearing dirty clothes with the sign that says like the end is coming for us all or something just like this old school prophet that nobody like just like you're out of it man because it's that term melanist you just used so like andrew mellon was this guy back in the depression who was the secretary of treasury under hoover and when the crash of oh uh, I'm sorry, when the crash of 1929 happened, uh, Mellon was famous for telling the president, uh, Herbert Hoover, let this sucker burn out. And, and his, his quote is is like breathtaking. Mellon said, liquidate the farms, liquidate the stocks, like basically like burn them all. Because the theory there was like, you got to let this depression run its course to clear out all the rot. And then the economy can grow again. And and. Looking back on it, I think the vast majority of economists see Mellon as being profoundly wrongheaded because yeah, I think you, the word you use in the book is that he's seen as sort of being uh, heartless and even delusional, very like cold and calculating. Yeah, cold, calculating, heartless. And then delusional is the key part, because what the economists are saying is like, if you let the depression really gain ground, it, it creates a downward spiral that makes the depression worse. So, in fact, the the like strategic and 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 smart thing to do is to stop the depression early by pumping money in if you will or bailing things out to stop the downward cycle and so tom honig had been remembered as a guy who was heartless and cold and melanistic in 2010 and said you know to the heroic leaders at the fed tom honig was saying don't help people stop you're you're going to print too much money. And I don't want that. Like, listen, the key part here is I was uh, seriously, that's, that's the impression of Honig I got. And I was truly stunned when I went back and read the historical record, 
when I, you know, they re, they release the internal transcripts of these Federal Reserve debates after a delay of five years. So now all the arguments inside the Fed are public record. And then you've got the public statements that Tom Honig was making at the time. Those are all there down on paper now or digital. And in fact, the record shows this guy, first of all, was pro-intervention during the crash. He, he voted yes on every single thing. He was not a reflexive dissenter. He had been on the policy committee since 1991, and I think he voted no like twice in, in all those years when he had six votes a year. I mean, he'd barely ever dissented, no more than most. I was going to say, so it sounds like he starts dissenting after the initial crisis. He starts dissenting after the initial crisis at this key moment of 2010. Okay. So during the crisis, Honig is like, yeah, man, this is not the time to sit back, print money, pump money, that trillion dollars that the Fed printed. He was all for it. It's what happens in 2010. That's when Ben Bernanke's like, you know, the economy is still fragile, growth is still weak. It's, you know, he didn't explicitly say this, but it was understood that like Congress isn't really going to do much at all now with the Tea Party in particular. And so what Bernanke is saying is we need to pin the interest rate at zero and we need to pump money into Wall Street through quantitative easing. And Honig, who is not alone, by the way, there are other people arguing this. Honig is like, listen, if you do this, you're going to only benefit the rich. You're going to create massive asset bubbles that will eventually crash. You're going to commit the Fed to an endless cycle of money printing, and you're going to dramatically widen the gap between rich and poor. Like the record speaks for itself. It's all there. That is exactly what he warned against. And he was ignored and steamrolled. And so in 2010, he voted no at every single meeting. No, 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 no. He was trying to stop this era of 0% interest and quantitative easing. And so like, when you look at Hunnig's record overall, he's got a ton of no votes, but they all happened in that one year. And the record also shows that other people shared his concerns. Uh, they just didn't vote no. You know, Kevin Warsh uh, is, is an example of this. And Ben Bernanke like openly admits in his memoir that he made a political bargain with Kevin Warsh to vote yes and go along with it in spite of his concerns. So the difference between Kevin Warsh and Tom Honig is that Tom Honig voted his beliefs and Kevin Warsh took the political path. That was the difference. Uh, their concerns were not different. And the record also shows, in my mind, just indelibly that Honig was correct in all of these warnings, he, he wasn't saying, oh, my God, we're going to see hyperinflation or, you know, we need to hold back for like puritanical ethical reasons. He was warning about the era we saw that you and I just, just talked about of the funhouse mirror economy. So it, it sounds like, you know, he may be a conservative, but it sounds like he's a, a, a small C conservative. Perfect way to describe it. I mean, He's he's really loath to talk about politics. He's an interesting guy um, in the sense that he's been an employee, if you will, of the sort of like nonpartisan governing infrastructure of America. Like, you know, his first job. Well, OK, Tom grew up in a small town in Iowa, uh, went to Vietnam, uh, came home and got a Ph.D. in economics from Iowa State University 
and then moves to Kansas City to become a bank supervisor at the local Federal Reserve Bank in Kansas City. That's 1972. And so Honig works inside the Kansas City Fed from 72 until he retires in 2012. And then, as you point out, he then goes to work for the top bank regulator, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC. Uh, He worked there for, uh, I don't know, ballpark four years. And he's always been, I don't want to use the word functionary, but he's been very conscious to work in the nonpartisan part of the American system, like these administrative agencies that are just sort of supposed to run stuff. And so he doesn't talk a lot about who he votes for, but there's just no getting away from his conservative nature. You know, he's, he's, he's conservative in nature and, and, and small C conservative is important because it's not like he was anti-government, but he's, he's, he's a real pragmatic person and definitely advocates for restraint intervention, uh, a restraint. I was going to say, he's not like uh, necessarily, he's not like a, a Ludwig von Mises or anything like that. Well, he, I, I don't want to paper it over. He studied von Mises and he studied Frederick Hayek. And I think he admires, he's told me, and, and since the book has come out, he's been interviewed, he admires those Australian, I'm sorry, Austrian economists. And gee, geez. He works at the Mercatus Center, which is a libertarian think tank at George Mason University. So like I'm saying, the guy is conservative. But, but listen, there's, there's nuance to this. He's not a Ron Paul abolish the Fed guy. And there's this great Business Week profile of Honig back in 2010, where Honig goes to this like Tea Party meeting. And the Tea Party people really kind of hate this guy because he won't say, like, we need to get rid of the Fed. And I went back and read Tom Honig's master's thesis and PhD thesis at Iowa State University. And like the mentality that was reflected there isn't hardcore libertarian abolish the government. Like his master's thesis, I think, not the PhD, but the master's thesis was like, how can the state of Iowa maximize tax collection? Because, you know, the primary concern is like, the state needs to fund roads and schools and public services. So how do we make sure we collect taxes effectively? That's not a libertarian thing. This is a guy who I think is very pragmatic, conservative, but grew up in this era of like the Eisenhower Republican in the shadow of the New Deal, when there was like this recognition that the government and the market needed to sort of operate in sync is what they call the mixed economy, the regulated economy. He's a, he's a proponent of that. So before closing out here, you mentioned uh, the Tea Party a number of times, and uh, it does seem like the, the Tea Party sort of hovers in the background of all this, especially in that November 2010 period. Uh, what, what's the reason for that? Why is the Tea Party sort of lingering around while all this is happening with the Fed? Because, again, the book starts on November 2nd, 2010 and ends in 2021. I think the most significant political movement in America during that decade was the Tea Party movement and the conservative movement. It it was such an odd, and I wrote about this in Cokeland. I mean, you know, Obama started like consciously compared on the cover of Time magazine to FDR and the Democrats held majorities in the House and Senate that quickly fell apart 
And you had the rise of a Tea Party-driven conservative movement that first took over the House of Representatives and then the United States Senate. I believe in 2014, they took the Senate. The Tea Party defined an era of American politics that was an era of paralysis. The entire agenda of the Tea Party was to stop stuff from happening in DC. That's not controversial because they thought everything happening in DC was bad. And, and to me, that's like the defining political reality of the decade of the 2010s until now is that, and listen, it sounds like I'm blaming the Tea Party entirely. I feel like they get, they deserve quite a bit of blame. Democrats, um, I, I'm not a like, oh my gosh, both parties are messed up kind of guy, but like, it's complicated to describe, you know, corruption and the dominance of special interests isn't just in the Republican Party, of course. And that's one of the primary reasons our, our federal democratic institutions are so paralyzed. But the Tea Party drove the paralysis to a very large degree and embodied the paralysis and, 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 and if there's one kind of backdrop, big picture political issue in this book, it's that our democratic institutions sunk down into a bog of dysfunction and paralysis. And it was these non-democratic institutions like the central bank that were sort of left to push forward. And so, you know, that's why you have an economic policy of job creation through money printing. So this was a huge huge dynamic of the 2010s and the tea party was central to it. Well, I want to thank you, Christopher Leonard, for coming on Parallax Views. In closing here, I, I know that listeners can get the book from, uh, you know, uh, I, I would suggest they go to their independent booksellers, but um, I, I wanted to give you a chance to maybe explain what you hope that my listeners get out of this conversation and what they get out of the book if they um, happen to decide to pick it up. So I think the best way for me to answer that is to talk about the book. Um, here's exactly what I wanted to do with this book is write a relatively thin, fast moving story that a reader could pick this up. And if they're on a trip, they can read it at night in the hotel room and, and it's entertaining and like moves fast. But at the end of it, I really want readers to have like this clear and concrete understanding of what the central bank is, how it affects our lives and what it's done over the last decade. Um, so this is like a dossier I'm giving to people to say like, look, I feel like you need to understand this. I knew, I know I did. And I think at the end of reading this story, and it is a story, but I think at the end of it, you're going to be much better like armed to discuss uh, political economy stuff in the United States. So that's my goal with it. And, and, you know, assuming people don't read the book, hopefully at least, hopefully at least there's a renewed, frankly, skepticism about the federal reserve and what its leaders say and, and what they're doing. And, and, and maybe it would invite more scrutiny. Well, thank you again, Christopher Leonard. And I suggest everyone pick up the Lords of easy money, how the federal reserve broke the American economy. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Christopher Leonard, author of 
The Lords of Easy Money How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy It is definitely a book worth checking out. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me with a one, five, ten, fifteen, or hundred dollar monthly donation at patreon.com slash parallax views. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallax views. It is you, the loyal listener that helps to keep this show going. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.